that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani, and welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, and we are in the middle of a two-part episode, one of our Paisani of interest, a great conversation that we've been having with Severino D'Angelo. If you listened to the first episode, you know we talked a lot about his immigration experience and the amazing diversity of what he left in Italy and what he found here in 1960s America. And in this part, we're going to talk a lot about the incredible experiences this man's had in America as an American and an Italian American and the accomplishments, the career, the coincidences that make him a paisan of interest in our book. And I think after part one, hopefully in most of yours, we want to wish everybody a belatedly happy Thanksgiving. Hope the holiday was wonderful and peaceful. Thanks for understanding. We took the week off and uh, hopefully you're primed up. You've listened to part one and you're looking forward to part two here as Pat and I sit down with our paisan of interest, Severino D'Angelo. Now, why don't you tell us how the Army changed? Because you've had a lot of life-changing moments, things yeah. that really yeah. change your universe. Well, uh, that's, Why don't you tell us that story, what happened when you got drafted? That's probably the most uh, fundamental change in my life. Uh, in Italy, I wasn't doing well. You know, I was, doesn't fit in. I want to be a priest. I was confused. I want to be a, an engineer. I, I, I was very confused. I came to America two years after being in Jersey City. I was going from bad to worse. Uh, 1965, I still didn't speak English. I'd been uh, kicked out of school because I didn't understand what they would do. I was going at uh, Dickinson High School in, uh, in Jersey City. And I was doing the thing night classes because I was working during the day. I even lost my job because I, I was very sick, extremely sick. I didn't even know it. Morally, I was uh, you know, way down. So suddenly I got a draft card. I said, okay, we want you for the war. Well, uh, they took me. Uh, they shouldn't have, but they took me in. And it was a great, great thing because uh, once I got in the, in the army, finally I didn't have uh, my family to speak to anymore. I started speaking up English. Oh, by the way, at the draft, uh, the induction office, they found an Italian uh, uh, major. And uh, he spoke really well Italian. Mm. His name was D'Amato. I still remember wow. the last name because I saw it on his yeah. uh, name card. And he, he said to me why they were accepting me. I, I was so... Confused, I didn't understand it. But anyway, I went through basic training. Suddenly, I was well. I felt well, and I I, I did very well on uh, on the physical tests. Then I went for uh, this was Fort Dix, New Jersey. And then they took me to Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri, where I took additional training for a uh, job training. And then I was moving. I can see west. Went to Fort Lewis, Washington, headed for Vietnam. Mm-hmm. There, I joined the 554 Engineering Company. I was in Engineering Corps. Uh, I had been trained as a mechanic. But we, it was a floating bridge company. And wouldn't you know, after about a little while, I was walking guard duty in the building, and my side pains came back. What I haven't said is that I had a three-liter cyst. Oh, my God. Slashed between the liver and the diaphragm. Wow. I looked very thin. Nobody knew it. All my doctors thought didn't know what I had. They only thought I had a sick liver because the liver appeared to be enlarged. They felt it by putting their right. hands underneath my ribs. And in New Jersey, I had two doctors, and they wanted to do a biopsy because we can figure it out. So what do you do? When you can figure out something, you just go and get more data, right? Yeah. 
That's what we all do and know and everything. Well, the biopsy would have been fatal. Wow. The cyst was full of poison, three liters full of poison. Three liters, by the way, if, if you don't know metric cyst, 6.6 pounds, size wow. of a newborn baby. Wow. You couldn't tell. I was very thin. Yeah, I was all stuck in, stuck in there. So, so because of the draft, I did not do the biopsy. Now, I, got, uh, I was in Fort Lewis, Washington. I was working guard duty. So only the side pains came back. I went to, to, the, to the, see the doctor, sent me to the hospital. And they wanted to do the same thing over there. They wanted to do this. said, well, we know what you do. We're going to be here three days. We want to see what you have, and then we send you back. Well, it turned out that uh, three days went by, a week went by, and later found out that the, the, the doctor in charge did not trust the, the Dr. Ziegler was his name, who took care of me. He says, hey, I don't know sure he knows. He found this other fellow, Dr. Horace Gardner, who um, was quite smart. And uh, he said, why don't you take a look at him? He looked at it. This guy brilliantly determined that I, what I had without additional information. Wow. His reason was simple. He said, uh, it cannot be an enlarged liver because the liver functions are normal. Sure. Uh, a big liver enlarged will not function normally. Consequently, there must be something else there. So he looked into my background, did some additional research, and concluded that I had econococcal cyst. Wow. Econococcal cyst was, was huge. It was full of poison. So because of the other doctors in the Army want to do the same thing, want to do the biopsy. Well, it took a long time. I think I, I went to the hospital late February, and then in April they performed an operation to remove the cyst. And I was in the hospital until December. Wow, almost a year. Nine months to be exact. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the best nine years of my life until then, if we can believe it. Yeah, I can. The yeah. best nine months. Best nine months. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The reason is, first of all, the, the, the hospital I was in was called Medigan General Hospital. It was all on one ground floor. Okay. Every word stuck in the beautiful green northwest in, in, uh, in uh, the state of Washington yeah. near Tacoma. And it was a good place. And slowly I got better, and now I was anxious and willing to learn. I was really wanted to learn, even though I'm not a very good learner, but I was learning. I was trying. So um, later on, when I finally could stand on my two feet, I started taking classes from teachers that came to the base. I could get on a bus, okay? And I, and I may not get to that, why, why I was still feeling well at being in a hospital. I could go to the base, take out the classes, get the bus, and back to the hospital. And I took a lot of classes during the summer of 1966 because I was drafted in 65. And uh, I entered the hospital in the uh, winter spring of 66. By the summer, I was, was, I was feeling okay. However, I couldn't leave the hospital because once they removed the cyst, it left a huge cavity behind. And the cavity was um, collecting my bile. Wow. I needed the bile to my digestive system, and they had a bag attached to my right side where the bile collected. Wow. And then daily, I was taking the bile from uh, the, um, the bag yeah. and put it in a container and, and, and put it into my stomach through a tube that I insert oh every morning to my nose. Yeah. That was, that was, I got used to it. It was no problem. But I had a bag on the side, even though I was just fine. I was healthy. Yeah. But I couldn't go anywhere because uh, in, in the Army, sure. either you're ready to go fight Oh, you're sick. Yeah. You don't really have uh, anything in between. But th that time was great because I could take classes. I was learning a lot. I, I left by Christmas. I still didn't have enough classes taken for, uh, 
for a, for a high school diploma. Uh, I was taken from a Clover Park High School, which I never seen it, by the way, in Tacoma, Washington. That's where the teachers came from. In December, I got transferred back to what I had been before, to Fort Leonard with Missouri, because I didn't have enough time left in the service to go to Vietnam. Mm. Back there, I took more classes from a local college called Drury College, English classes, and they were sufficient now for me to get a, a diploma. And this would have been... Uh, 1967, by June, I had a high school diploma. I was uh, flying high, you know, wow. ready to go, go to college to become an engineer. I applied uh, to two schools here in New Jersey, uh, Rutgers and uh, to Newark College of Engineering, and today is known as the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Right. So uh, my service came to an end uh, in September, because I started in September, September 15, approximately, and they gave me a two weeks early discharge just to allow me to go to college. Wow. But here's the interesting, other interesting phenomenon. I didn't hear back from either Newark College of Engineering or Rutgers. I was anxious. I was writing to, I think I was more interested in Rutgers at the time because somehow, you know, I always have been dreamy beyond my abilities. I want to be, yeah. also want to study psychology. I was going for two degrees. Imagine this, but hey, <laughs> can I say that was, that was, that was, that was I. <laughs> so um, as soon as I got back, I made appointments to both uh, admission offices. I went first to Rutgers, a very young man, nice young man, a rich greeted me there. He explained to me that my reading ability was not up to par. I couldn't have done well in the, in, as a liberal arts major, you know, like psychology or engineering or whatever. And he said, listen, well, he explained all well to me. He was very sympathetic. And at the end of the interview, when I was basically in, rejected, he gave me his business card. They said, when you get up to uh, see my counterpart at, uh, across the street, uh, across the street from each other, the time was called High, High Street. I was called in uh, Newark. Yeah. Newark. You know, it's called uh, Martin Luther King. It's MLK, MLK Boulevard. Boulevard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you just have him call me. Hmm. Well, I took this business card. I just walked across the street, had the appointment. I forgot about that, the fact what he had said. And the, the uh, admission officer, NC, sang the same song and dance. So, okay, your reading ability is no good. They can have you here. You know, he, he even said, that, you know, my uncle works for General Electric uh, as an engineer. He has to read so many books a month. You can possibly do that. Well, I couldn't disagree. You know, I knew I didn't have that good ability. I was getting pretty, uh, pretty depressed, rejected. I said, oh, the fellow across the street wants you to call him. I gave him the business card. Wow. <laughs> they talked. I have no idea what was said because I couldn't hear uh, the conversation from mm. both sides. At the end, they said, okay, you're in. Wow. How about that? <laughs> That's just like that. That's what it's I call like that. that. I guess it works <laughs> even in America. No, no. I think that the Rutgers admission officer understood that I was very motivated. Yeah. And indeed I was. As a matter of fact, uh, my um, GPA as a freshman, it wasn't bad. It didn't have straight A's, but I was uh, well in uh, lower B average. I think it was 3.2, 3.3. In the second semester, I did just, just as well. So I was doing well in school. That cyst that you got saved my life. Saved your life. Kept yeah. you out of Vietnam. Yes, and then you had a lifelong friendship with that young doctor, right? It was a young doctor who had oh, he determined they, these doctors you... were all twenty five years old. It was, I think, a uh, a learning hospital. Yeah, yeah. All these they, they all running around, all captains, and they all the, the white coats, all young men, but no much older than I was. And know? and the young doctor. Saved your life. He became a lifelong friend. He was a terrific, terrific guy. He really got to like me a lot. Not only saved my life, but uh, 
Yeah, you like me. Yeah, I remember you saying one time that you took some type of aptitude test in the military. And you came out very high on the engineering sense. I felt so. Yeah, I had a pretty high score. Would any of this have been possible if you had stayed in joy? Oh, you kidding me? No way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the medical side alone, with a cyst like that, you might yeah, not. I, I would have died. Yeah, yeah. studying in, in New Jersey, if I hadn't, I would have died. It is amazing to think how life changes on, on the head of a needle, right? So much of your life can change on these little circumstances. But now you, your aptitude is revealed. You get into what's now New Jersey Institute of Technology. Where did that take you in your career? Because you know, it's always awkward to talk about somebody when they're here, but you've had a very successful career. Yeah, yeah, I, I got lucky. First of all, let me explain this. I am a terrible student. I'm terrible learning. I have one talent in my life, and that was it, other than climbing mountains. <laughs> <laughs> climbing mountains is and built into you. Physics and, and mathematics, it's intuitively obvious to me. And I'm an inventor. Mm. I'm a, uh, always work in my fantasy, always thinking. Wow. So uh, in 19, I graduated in three years, by the way. Because I was so motivated, I took the I skipped the sophomore year. Wow! In 1970, I graduated from college. I met my uh, my wife, who at that time she was married. By the way, so so, can I back up a little bit with that story? Sure. There's two points I think that are really great in your story. Why don't you tell us about the trip you took home to Italy, meeting Don Elvira, going back to Joy for the first time after emigrating to America, and meeting the woman who would become your wife? Don Elvira was Don Elvira. Who was the woman who was the noble lady who said, "Oh, what are you, oh, a, a garbage oh, man?" Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I remember her. I don't. I better not say her name. Well, but we could say an, un, an unnamed well, she's noble. Al, she's Don okay. Alvira now. Okay. That's a perfect. Okay. She was Alvira. She was a Don. She was. My, she was a Don, a noble woman in your yeah, hometown. Yes, yes. She was. With, living, and I remember you living, saying uh, her stockings were ripped. Her her fancy clothes were mothy. Well, but she was still a Don in the town. That was her sister. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um. In Italy, if you cannot be a don, an important person, you want to be the most important in Italy, be an engineer. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Doctors are respected, but engineers are the top of the thing. Too from, bad. from Roman times to today, we love yeah. an engineer. Yeah. yeah. Too bad that in America we are nerds. <laughs> <laughs> the nerds have conquered the but earth, I'm, believe me. But I'm a happy nerd. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay. So I got over there, and I remember talking. I've been left, I left Italy only about. Eight years earlier, I think, yeah, seven seven years earlier, she said, "Hey, uh, what do you do in America?" You know, I said, "Well, I'm an engineer." She was, uh, she took personally. She turned ninety degrees, turned as if addressing the world. She said, "Listen to these guys. They live joy." It come back a few years later. They said that engineers. Wow! Imagine that. Yeah, so it was kind of like, so what did I say wrong? You know? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know. Because you had become an American and mentally, like a, a, a level playing field. You can, a meritocracy, you can yeah. do what you want to do. And she was of the Italy of, you were not of the right social class to be an engineer. For her, yes. Yeah, not anymore. And now they have all. But in changed. that time, yeah. in yeah. your medieval yeah. Yeah. world that you left, yes. How could someone of your social backing say you were an engineer? Yes, exactly. How could you get up so fast and so on? If I had said, you know, I got a nice job to squeak me the floor so much, you would have been very happy with it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. But, but why don't we also find out you met somebody in a... Bat- why don't we talk about the Batipaya train station? No, this actually was Salerno train station. Oh, Salerno train I was station. Si- I was sitting there and I was going home. It was in 1970. I just graduated from school. I was reading a. Ma- uh, 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 so you're back visiting Italy and you're in the Salerno train yeah, station. Yeah, I was. I had glasses on because I'm, I'm myopic, nearsighted, and I was reading and. Uh, a uh, beautiful lady come walks in, girl about my age walks in, looks around, and everybody stares at her. But I wasn't because I was not. I didn't even see her. <laughs> <laughs> Bad eyesight of that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was reading. <laughs> she figured, well, there's a serious one. So she approached me, and I heard somebody speaking to me in Italian uh, with a very heavy American accent. Can you watch my uh, backpack? She was traveling throughout Europe with the, with a backpack, and and she, can you watch it? And uh, I gotta go to the bathroom. Well, she was married, by the way. She only been married one year. And they had traveled with her husband and her other brothers and sisters all over Eastern Europe. And she was pretty sloppy, I mean, pretty informally dressed. Yeah. So she, her husband, in some reason, was not a good marriage, well, f- fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> he went to Spain and she came to Italy. She got off in Salerno because of a toothache. And then she had to go back on the train to go back to go to Sicily. Because that's what she wanted to do. She was cheap, and she didn't want to spend more money than she had to. She had a Euro pass, and she wanted to make sure she got to Sicily by midnight. Wow. So she went over, and when I, she came back, I, could, I found out immediately she was uh, speaking English. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. she was American. Because the way I remember Americans, a uh, woman, you know, from those days, they all dressed, nicely dressed, and nicely hair, uh, with flowers on their head, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. But she was very informal, no makeup and shoes, a backpack on, you know. Well, I thought she was Scandinavian, perhaps, or maybe English, but not American. I mean, she was from California, it turns out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, the thing that I think Patrick wants me to say is well, that... Well, she missed her train. It's a great story. Yeah, that's the part of the thing. She said to me at one time, this is, I remember really well, well, you speak Italian. Would you ask these people here where my train to Sicily comes so they, I won't miss it? And one guy, you know, Italians have this habit of telling you for sure what's not really true. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> they <laughs> okay. are very... Yes. Oh, it's, a, oh, it's the one over yeah, there. It's a great conviction, yeah. yeah. So we grabbed their backpack, and I being a gentleman... You know, we rushed to the train. I got on a train to put the backpack over the thing, and the train left. Wow. Okay? Now, uh, it happened that the train was not going to Sicily. (laughs) (laughs) It was not going where I was going. (laughs) So I'm on the wrong train. She's on the wrong train. Wow. Where's it going? It was going to Potenza. Wow. That was was going down 17 kilometers to Batipaglia, and then turning east. Yeah. Into, yeah. into the it's, interior in Basilicata. Right. Instead, instead of going straight south. Yeah. Uh, we got to Batipal. I had been there before. I knew the area well. So we got off the train and said, well, let's go back. I had to go back to Salerno to pick up my luggage. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to Salerno. It was too late for her to go anywhere. Or, so he said, well, why don't you come to my hometown? They, they're very friendly there. And she spent three days uh, But what was me. the... I, I love when you say about how it was for you showing up with the American you found in the train station. <laughs> well, she was married. <laughs> right, didn't they put... You, so you, you, she had to go and stay with your cousin, correct? Uh, with your, uh, with uh, Carmelina. You know her, right? Right, sure. So you yeah, had... Yeah, she stayed with Carmelina. Because a lot of our listeners don't understand the Italy at that time. She couldn't stay in the same house. Um, a, a single man and a married woman... You had to separate them. Funny they couldn't thing be in under the same I roof, that, basically. Yeah, I don't remember where we stayed. It's really interesting. I, I, I remember, remember you telling me one time that they 
Carmelina or somebody insisted that she had to stay in a separate house not to cause scandal. No, not in the same room, for sure. But uh, but now you were also engaged to a girl in joy at the well, time. Well, not really. Well, <laughs> but there was an ex. If, if if my memory serves correct from the stories you've told me, there was an expectation of marriage. Italy, you didn't date. Yes, it's not like yeah. an American. Right, if you were right, right. dating, yeah. had finished yeah. with marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the reason I bring that up is that you had changed. I had changed a great deal. So yeah. the the old girlfriend in joy, yeah, knew a Severino that didn't exist anymore. Exactly. And yeah. the the yeah. the Barbara, the American woman that you met, the waspy, yes, college educated, family of college educated Americans. She was a PhD herself wow. in psychology, and I was still a college student because I didn't I couldn't find a job. I went to graduate school, by the way. Wow. Yeah, and she was already a, a college professor. Wow. She was teaching psychology at, at San Jose State. So she was, but she wasn't married. I, I have no aspiration of uh, getting together with Barbara whatsoever. Because she, never mind, she was beyond my league, but also she was married and she was moving, and uh, we never really stayed in contact but after then the, that. The postcard came. Until, until the end of the year, yeah, December. Yeah. But um, I, yeah, you're right. I had changed, and, and, and let's face it, the girl, it's a lovely girl. She's still there. She's. Still beautiful, still nice. Uh, I don't know. She has never gotten married. That was your father's best friend's daughter. Well, yes, I know. Yeah. But the reason I brought up <laughs> yes, and my father know. was in favor of this, and no, neither was her father. So we was uh, was doomed from the beginning. Well, it, it wouldn't have worked with or without Barbara. Well, it's, 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 the, the, it's the last vestiges of the. You well, talk about leaving medieval, medieval Italy, Italy, right? Yeah. So I'm trying yeah, to say that yeah, your yeah, old yeah. relationship with your old girlfriend yeah. was medieval Italy. Yeah. Your fathers were friends. Yeah. You grew up in the same village. Yes. You had a very simple life. Yes. A happy life, but a simple life, simple aspirations. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you had stayed in joy, you would have married her, probably. Maybe. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so she has that expectation, but you go back. Well, and if I stayed in joy, I would become a priest. Yeah, you might. Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Monsignore. But, <laughs> and, and what I'm saying is you go back to Italy and you're a different person. Yes. Right. You're a different person. I had changed tremendously by then. Yes. You had changed tremendously. Were you yeah. an Italian? Were you an American? You were something, right? Yes. But you weren't the person who left. I wasn't. You had yeah. seen the whole world. You had had education. You had had experiences. You meet this noble woman who's just like shocked. How can you, peasant boy, be an engineer? You yeah. know? Yeah. And I remember you saying like how difficult it was, but you had changed. You were a different person and you were evolving into really an Italian American, right? Yeah. Part of him is Italy, part of him is America. I love to hear you talk about the shock you had in meeting Barbara's real American family, how they were different from the family and the dynamic you had grown up with. Okay, let me uh, build up a little bit to that, why I was what I was. In 1970, I graduated from college, but I, I had decent grades. And there were some of my colleagues, my friends, did not have as good a GPA as I did. But they were getting job offers I wasn't. The jobs were scarce. I understand. In, 19, in 1970, engineering jobs were they vanished for some reason. I don't know what. It was probably a little, little recession. I don't yeah. know. So I couldn't find a job. So, but not being able to find a job, what I did, I just applied for graduate school. And I got a teaching assistant that was teaching and uh, going to school at the Newark College of Engineering, or NJIT now. And that's where I was when I went to, um, tell you what, that's important, when I went to, to Italy. And this was uh, in August 1970. That's when I met Barbara there. We were, then I went back home. I went, finished the summer, went back to school. She went back to, to, to she lived in Santa Clara with her husband. He was also a psychologist. 
he was a psychologist at the University of Santa Clara, and she was a, a university assistant professor, I suppose, yeah, San Jose State, which was next door. And uh, that was it. So we had no more contact. So this was August. I went to school. I started studying hard, blah, 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 blah. So suddenly I got a postcard, as you said, in uh, December. She, she wrote to me and she said, uh, you've been so nice to me in Italy. You want to come and visit? Because I already said, I don't like New Jersey. I want to move to California. I really like one. I've never been there, but I wanted to move to California. So, you know, of course, I'm on the first, I got on the first plane. Wow. I went there for Christmas. Wow. Yeah. Now, this is true. Maybe you want to edit it out, but... Uh, no, if it's true, it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> but, but I will tell you, uh, they had a so-called open marriage. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's really... And that did not exist in joy. No, no. no. That did not it exist was, in joy. It was, uh, it was uh, her, his idea, not hers. Okay? Wow. Is she being a psychologist in the early 70s, and you want to... Everything goes, you know? Yeah. Okay. So when I got there, he said to us, he said, are you guys going to spend the, the weekend at the Fantasy House? They had bought uh, some uh, mountain cabins in the Santa Cruz uh, Mountains, Boulder Creek. And I'll go see my girlfriend in Mexico. Wow. That's, <laughs> that is picture-perfect 1970s America. <laughs> okay, it ain't medieval okay. Italy. Wow. That so, was a long way from a, a seminary and, yeah. and, I, and I, was, I was thinking, well... I'm a little Italian Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> how do I know? That's how things are done in California. That's why. Yeah, that's about a different world. I'm not going to get a better offer than this. <laughs> <laughs> hey, like I tell you, Barbara was a, she's passed away, unfortunately. I'm sorry. But she was a gorgeous looking woman, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, we spent the, the, the night at Boulder Creek. Anyway, that's how things got started with doing us. And then, uh, and then uh, it came uh, the uh, spring break. And we repeated the uh, the experiment, the yeah, test, the and vacation. Then, and then suddenly she decided she didn't want any more of this uh, crazy early seventy marriage, and uh, the two of them split up. And that's that's another good story, you know. But the reason why I brought the graduate school is, and I said, well, we want we want to get married now. Suddenly, yeah. their divorce came through two years after they had been married, the exact same day. By the way, wow. <laughs> the nice second. and neat. Yeah, that's neat. So how are we going to do this? She said, I, I can't find a job. I'm in school. She said, well, transfer from New Jersey to California. She suggested I apply to UC Berkeley and Stanford. Stanford didn't take me, but UC Berkeley to, took me to graduate school. So that's why I ended up in uh, uh, UC Berkeley. And that's how I finished my master's. Because then uh, in 1972, that's when I finally got my uh, my master's degree. Um uh, the job market that opened up and companies came to an engineering school. I don't know if this is for every major. The the companies come to campus and they did, they did the same thing here. And they did there. They come, you sign up, you go to the placement center. Yeah. You have all the interviews. And I got a couple of job offers and I picked up the one in Orange County. That's how we ended up in Orange County. And that's where I lived for, for the longest time. Now, ah. tell me what it was. I, I love when you talk about how different Barbara's family dynamic was from yours. How shocking! Everything was shocking about meeting Barbara, but how that really yes, changed I, your this perspective. This could be my father and, and his mother. They absolutely loved each other, but they never said a word to each other. Your parents? No, 
my parent, my father and his mother. Oh, and his mother. Okay, yeah. yeah. They never talked. Well, my parents never talked either. <laughs> right, of course, right. <laughs> okay, yeah. except for what's a, what's a need-to-know basis, yeah. like yeah. the CIA, you know? Yeah. But they didn't talk. I'm home, I'm hungry, feed me, that kind of thing. There was no talk. I didn't talk to my parents unless it uh, was absolutely necessary. Yeah. They each talked extensively to their friends, but not within the family. Okay, so... When Barbara came to New Jersey, because what she did in June uh, 1971, yes, 1971, she came to June, we got in my car, we drove across, she was there visiting and she was on the phone talking to her mother. And she was talking like her best friend. Yeah. So at the end, I said, who is this person you're talking to? And she said, it's my mother, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I gotta say, her family is exceptional. They there were seven of them. They were each other's best friends. Wow. Yeah. And they still to to, to this day take vacations together. Wow. You know, Barbara, of course, she died prematurely uh, about twelve years ago. Yeah. So, uh, but Italy was hierarchical. Like the you spoke up to your, you know, you spoke up to your parents or dad. Like it was more the parent-child relationship was a very different dynamic than the American parent-child relationship. Yes, and of course it was it's not a for me it was not a good system. So uh in what sense? I think you need more of a good relationship between children and parents. So you need uh, my stepdaughter, my stepson currently, okay? He has a child mentality. And and uh, he's so much he's like very best friends with his children. Yeah. They play games together. Tells them what they have to act. That they it's a really good relationship. But that wasn't the relationship that's of a, parents and kids in the medieval Italy. Not, not what you grew had. up with. No, my, no, no. In my yeah. grandfather's family, we always talk about this because my my father's last paternal uncle, my uncle Dominic, is ninety two, and yeah, you know, my grandfather passed away when I was sixteen. But I spent a lot of time around him and his siblings. There were they were ten of them, I think. And my grandfather's family, Uncle Dom, always says because he's the youngest of all of them, and. They had to refer to their older siblings as Massa, you know, Massa Antonio was Uncle Tony, or Massa Juan was my grandfather. And it was this, even a hierarchy within themselves of the way that they could approach. Like they were not, you know, particularly some, some of the ones that were grouped closest together in age were friendly, but they weren't social friends. They were well, there's hierarchical. Well, def definitely a Southern Italian tradition. I don't know about the North, where the older siblings are at the top of the pecking order. Yeah, yeah, uh, not in my family. In in a little town like Joy, your siblings are just more kids in the neighborhood. Yeah, they uh, they were not my age because uh, my f I am between uh, two sisters who are eight years apart from each other. I'm right in the middle. Right. So you can see there were two sisters a long way from me. My youngest, uh, my next, the oldest brother after me was six years younger than me. Wow. So we weren't that really friends. But you step outside the house, what? There are you, all your friends, all yeah. your neighborhoods. Yeah. That's the thing about, I was reading an article in the Atlantic last, maybe beginning of COVID. They were talking about the changes in American lifestyle uh, post-war when people left particularly ethnic neighborhoods. And we talk about this all the time on the show where you lived amongst your entire kinship group, right? And they went out into the suburbs to live only amongst people in the same generation as you, right? So most of the early suburban uh, internal immigrants were post-war returning soldiers, starting family, having kids. So you were now living amongst your, like your contemporaries only, but in the old neighborhoods and even in rural America on these homesteads and things, you were living amongst an extended kinship group. So you were kind of related or familiar with everybody outside the house. 
inside the house, you had multiple generations doing multiple things. So like you said, for your parents, right, the men and the women didn't socially interact. They Men went and did their stuff with their paisani or their friends or whatever. The women did the same with their sisters, sister-in-laws or, or their kumadi. And everything was much more based on this large group. When you move out into the suburbs of the American experience, you're interacting with people who are all doing kind of the same thing in life and going out into the world in the same way. It redefines your ideas of friendship and relationships because everything becomes much more kind of optional. Like you're not surrounded by your family living in the same building anymore. It's it's much more based on your kind of decisions of how you want to socialize. I, I agree with you. And you just think in, in, in Italy from a small town, this whole town is, a, is an, a huge family. It's family, yeah. Yeah, the whole town. You meet in the square. See, that's, there's all this town social life. One thing that uh, didn't like about America from then, I'm still not too crazy about it, is the, uh, that you only have family life. There is no town squares. There are yeah. no piazza. Yeah. There is no place where everybody goes to the corner and meet there and see their friends. You know, it would be nice to, when you are home by yourself, you have nothing but oh, you want to see my friends, right? Yeah. Well, you have to make phone calls here. Yeah. And maybe you can be invited. They have to have dinner. It's kind of a... But, it's, that's, it's that, but that, that's the point about the changes in Jersey City, like in the 1976 article towards the 80s. You came, my dad always described his childhood in Brooklyn in the 50s and 60s. You know, he came from a neighborhood that was all Italians from primarily... The, the Valdiviano, right? Tejanese, Sanzese, you didn't really have much else. And for them, it was like growing up in a small Italian village in that you you lived your life outside. He's like, we had a tiny, they had a tiny railroad apartment, but he said, you know, we never, we never realized how tiny and uncomfortable it was because other than eating meals with your family, which and oftentimes you had your extended family for bigger ones, you were outside in the neighborhood, on the street with people that you were kind of related to that were, you know, you know from the same towns. And that's by the time the eighties kind of roll around and those enclaves disappear, that's gone. That's gone from our experience. So the transition from Italian town with a piazza to Italian enclave in America with the, you know, the street that everybody played on, who's on the stoop, which old ladies are out the window. Everybody knows each other's business. That's now gone. That's missing from our right. experience. Back then, there was another thing to do in a house. A yeah. house is a very uncomfortable place. You just went there to sleep and eat and then out of there. Yeah. It was a lot more fun being on the street. So you had your friends over there on the street. So you grew up, as I mentioned, in a, a large family. And your uh, uh, siblings were just more kids on the street. Yeah. If they weren't your age, you didn't even know them. Right. Because the most time you now, spent with them was sleeping and eating. Now, on the other hand, on the, on the plus side for the American life is that uh, families live together. There is no extended uh, town family. So you are pretty much forced to get to know your siblings. Yeah. Th those are your friends. That's the yeah. only ones you see every day yeah. constantly. Yeah. And I think that's a big plus for American uh, life. This season, gather together and connect to Italy with Media Set Italia. After holiday shopping or the big meal, turn on the TV and catch the latest and greatest from Italy's top channels, Canale 5, Italia 1, and Rete 4 on Media Set Italia, including a new season of the can't-miss talent show Amici, brand new current events program E Sempre Carta Bianca with Bianca Berlinger, new episodes of the quiz show Caduta Libera with everyone's favorite host, Jerry Scotti, plus brand new dramas and holiday specials. There's so much to be thankful for in Media Set Italia, so call your local television provider today and ask for the channel. So 
you meet Barbara. Yeah. You get married. Yes. You have twin daughters. You're living in California. You're living a, an American life that was unimaginable when yes. you were 17, 18 years old. Enjoy. When you if were, so, if the, somebody told me at the age of 17, in your adult life, you're going to be speaking English, I would have pissed my pants. <laughs> Okay. So true. <laughs> Never mind the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that I find so fascinating is, and and brag for us, is that in the early '80s, so you so you become a scientist. Tell us how the the trajectory of your career goes. Well, uh, okay, let's get there pretty quickly. I got to California. I got a job in uh, in Orange County. I had three years of a tr- good, very good engineering job because an engineering job you really learn a lot more on your on your on your on the, in your first few years, right? Because in school you learn all the theory, but what do you buy the components? Right. You know you don't learn that. You have to learn in school. So I had those great three years, but I have another problem uh, myself: deficiency. I don't have. I'm not very good with details. Mm. So I could think. I'm very good at thinking, but I'm doing it not too good at it. Yeah. So uh, designing circuits, I could do them, but I, I putting them all together I always made mistakes. Yeah. I didn't really fit well, and, and I knew it. But really, they took care of me at this first job. was uh, Dana Labs. We designed digital voltmeters. And I learned a great deal. But my job ended three years later. I was laid off, not because it wasn't any good, because the company wasn't doing well. Yeah. But my entire development group, engineering group, got laid off. Wow. Okay. So by there, this is another lucky shot. Somebody said, you know, there's a company up the street in Westminster hiring. They were doing a chassis dynamometers. And explain what those yeah, are. Yeah, I was going to say, please tell us what those are. Well, a good question, because when uh, the, my boss, who eventually hired me, Clark Figraus, said, uh, hey, I want you to come here and design a chassis dynamometer. My man is a chassis dynamometer what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm still not quite sure what that like. I didn't want to, I didn't want it to sound so stupid, so I went home. I had another, another interview the next day, so I was like, I'm going to study on this when I get home, but I couldn't find anything written about it. Okay, but briefly what it is, is a treadmill for automobiles. In order to certify a car for sale in, in, uh, in the United States or anywhere in the world, it has to meet emission standards. That is, the uh, exhausts from the tailpipe have to have a, a lower concentration of three key gases, CO, copper monoxide, hydrocarbons, H, uh, HC, and uh, NOx, nitrogen oxides. These are the three that are very important. In the process, they also measure CO2, by the way. Right. So to do this, you have to test the car. And the car has to drive as it's going up and down, up and down the road. Well, how do you do that? Well, it has to be in a lab. Well, how does the car going to drive in a lab? Well, you have to have a, a treadmill underneath. That's not just a treadmill. It has to mimic, has to simulate road driving. Wow. Yeah. So at that time, this, these machines were accomplished by doing, using mechanical components. And the, the, the one key thing had to do to uh, do the proper simulation. You have to simulate the weight of the car and the, and the windage or the drag on the road, like the, the, the wind blowing right. against you. That was not too hard to do. But the weight of the car was difficult. They had to do with uh, clutches and with uh, adding weights to the, to the weight. Clark, my boss, said, listen, I want you to design, to invent, to design one for me that does electrically. I don't want to get the clutches. I don't want to get the, the, the flow. Even though he was a mechanical engineer himself. Right. I said, well, how do you do this? Well, there's a company in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan that does it. Maybe we can do like them. Well, I started studying and reading about it, and I'll find out that they wasn't working right. Hmm. In fact, they couldn't use those for the, for the testing that I mentioned, called emission testing, because they were at a very slow reaction. 
So I start thinking and and uh, working on it. Before you know, I had thirteen patents. Wow. Yeah. I the first co- patent was with that company, and then I left that company. I went to work for a Japanese company called Huriba, and I had another twelve or, or no, no. I had also my own company. I had more patents there. But anyway, overall, I have about thirteen patents. And would you know, my design had become uh, the uh, national standards. <laughs> Maybe you say that so humbly to talk about, you know, that's amazing. So still, so you still have these 13 patents and this. And oh, no, the- no, no. I, in 1990 about EPA decided to, to finally get rid of these uh, clutches and things. And they decided to just go with something newer. And, uh, well, I, they like my proposal <laughs> big time. I got, I got uh, my proposal so much accepted that there were 11 uh, companies competing for that contract from all over the world from the environmental protection agency the, yeah epa the, yeah. in ann arbor yeah yeah there were 11 companies coming from japan from the u.s from uh france germany england and nobody from italy <laughs> <laughs> well they had you okay so uh but i was told later that my proposal technical proposal got 11 got so many points that the other 10 combined it was uh, it was good because I I know I know mine was work was working. Yeah. I figured out a way to make it respond quickly. Wow. Yeah. And uh, they took them and they, they they and then after the EPA bought them, has become the world standards. I don't think anybody else uses the silly clutches anymore. So still to this day, every car that's tested is tested on your well, invention. Well, yes, yeah, because you see, I came up with the right uh, equations. Yeah. It's all it's like a, it's, it's mathematics and physics, you know. Once you got the right equation, it's the right equation. What else can you do about it? You know, you can't make it any better. You know, you, you mentioned off the mic before we started, uh, you and I were talking about our shared love of history. And you mentioned during the interview that even early on in your life, you had trouble reading and retention, and you probably had undiagnosed learning disabilities, which I experienced myself. I'm the third generation of my family to have, I'm the first to get diagnosed with dyslexia. Uh, my grandfather, who's an incredibly... I got that too, by the way. See, that's what I was going to ask yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, my grandfather had very little institutional education experience in America, but went to work in a factory that created uh, art supplies. And, of course, he created for them all of these patents that they took out. I have the letters. He showed them to me. And he didn't know he had learning disabilities. He just figured he grew up speaking Sicilian. The school said to him, you know, we got nothing to do with you. Didn't learn English. So he was nine. But all of these patents that they took out, this company, Anko, were his inventions. He provided them with the drawings, isn't that? And they would give him like a $200 check, right? That was his bonus for inventing these things. Many, many of these supplies are still used. People have these. Mm-hmm. There's a, I'm one that he did that's like a, for artists, it's a, a fold-out easel and chair and supply. You carry it like a briefcase, and it folds out to be an easel, a chair, and hold all your supplies. And I, he's got the drawings of the early photocopies with the $200 canceled check. And then the company went and patented everything and made all this money. And it was only later when I got diagnosed with dyslexia. And I, I, I did so because I met a guy, the man who discovered the Titanic, Dr. Bob Ballard. He has dyslexia. He made me read this book called The Dyslexic Advantage. I was so taken by it that I brought it to my grandfather and my mother. I said, hey, guys, look, here's what our family has. But one of the things I learned in that dyslexic advantage was people with dyslexia even though they don't fit into the traditional schooling system, although that's changed. Like you said, we're not detail people, but you can picture immediately in your head complex systems, almost like in my mind, it always comes out like a dry erase board. Like I see the finish line on complex Mm -hmm. systems and models, and then it's a matter of getting those to the finish line with the actual details. Whereas other people who have been educated 
to rely on reading in words tend to see things, even if they don't perceive it, in words. And where you can't do that, you do it in models. So it's very interesting to think that you're inventing all of these things. And I look at my grandfather and his inventions, and a lot of that is born out of what has been termed the dyslexic advantage, this idea that you can see things in finished models. In my case, uh, by, with my knowledge of mathematics, physics, and electrical engineering, I could see the whole picture, just like you said. I yeah. could see the forest, but yeah. I cannot design the trees. That's how I feel. Yeah. So, so I would, I was able to tell the mechanical engineers that worked for, uh, in my pro, in my my pro, I was the project manager all right. the time in there, and I had the uh, the software people working on it and whatever else we needed. I said, okay, I want you to, the mechanical. I knew the physics, so I said, I want you the flywheel and the, the the rolls have to be this heavy. And they have to fit in this space. And I would tell the software guys, look, here's all my equations written in plain English. Or my, or, uh, my plain numerics. Yeah. And, and numerics. And then yeah. you had to turn that into in the program. I could help him. Right. Because, you know, for example, the computer doesn't know how to integrate. But they do know how to do submissions. Right. So I had to change all the integrals into uh, submission symbols. Wow. You know, you know they, they could do it. And when it finally worked, I tell you, it was great. But the fact that uh, I was more like a project manager rather than individual design, was I could do that just for the same reason that you can do. I can see, they can do the forest, but not the trees. Or somebody else has said, you can see the screen, but not the pixels. <laughs> yeah, that's very well said. You can see the screen, not the pixels. I, <laughs> I hope that that, I, I, I bring that aside up, not only because we share it, because I hope that anybody out there listening who, you know, we've, gone, we've come a long way in my lifetime. I remember when I was in eighth grade, the nun said to my mom, we think your son might have some learning disabilities. And my mom was sort of scandalized because it was such a, it was a topic that was talked about with a lot of shame, as if you had some sort of inability to do something or deficiency. But now, thankfully, we've, we live in a world that's much more understanding of differentiated learning and the strengths and advantages that come with different minds. So the reason I say it is not just because we share it, but because I want to encourage anybody out there in the audience who, you know, you or your kids or grandkids encounter these kind of things, think about these things from the advantage, because it's, it's this kind of brain born into a man like we have here with us, Severino D'Angelo, that takes you from medieval Italy to patents that still impact every single vehicle that go out into the world. That's an amazing story. Hello, everyone. I have the distinct pleasure today to talk to you about a project, a mission that I am very much in love with, and that is the Anchors Rum Mixer. Now I have Carly Reed on with me today. Carly, did I say that right? You did. I am madly in love with this machine. I throw in sifted flour, and that machine goes for 15 minutes. It can mix any kind of flour I have thrown in there. It comes out like the most perfectly kneaded bread, but Carly has the insight on the mechanics of why it works. She can tell you why you should buy it off of Pleasant Hill Grain. So with that, Carly, I'm turning the microphone over to you. It is an investment into your family, into your health, into your well-being from on a day-to-day -day basis. Our company has been in business for 25 years, and in that time, we've maintained a reputation for high-quality product offerings and excellence in customer service. So now you heard from Carly. You're not happy with the mixer. I will eat the mixer publicly. Can I do that? You can try. Why, why am I offering that? Because I know it's not going to happen. And with that, I'm done. For anyone who wants to learn more about the machine or get in touch with us directly, you can visit PleasantHillGrain.com. Um, you know, being this last thing you think is, is an advantage, but actually I think it's like this. We pay too much attention to people's abilities and not too much attention to people's willingness to work hard. Yeah, that's true. I think that uh, 
trying hard, liking what you what you do is really the key to success in anything. Intelligence is great, but if you don't have, you can still do it. Yeah, it takes a little longer. That's the Ameri- that's, that's that's the American yeah. ethos that I think has been lost in a lot of ways. I'll you know? give you two quotes. I think uh, well, Steve Jobs is the best quote. If you, he said, "You gotta love it. Yeah. If you love it, you spend time at it. Yeah. You might not be good at it, but eventually you get it." Okay. And Einstein said uh, something very fascinating. Is you know anybody who spends as much time at this as I have would have come up with the same answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe he's right. I, don't, I mean, they say ten thousand hours makes you an yeah. expert. But okay. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. What, 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 what was your question again? Um, <laughs> you got so many honors, but why don't you tell you are you're also a medal-winning marathon runner. Right, I don't want to. I mean, no, 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 no. I have not won any man. I've done a ball. And I mean, but at, 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 should, we say, should we say what? How old you are? Oh yeah, I'm eighty, almost eighty years right. old. You're gonna be eighty years old, and you're still doing marathons. I'm gonna do two on my birthday. Right, you're gonna do <laughs> two? You look like a million bucks. God right. bless you. I hope, you got, I hope so you're a marathon. Them. So you're an eighty-year-old marathon runner. Yes, I, I will be. Yeah, in six months. You've done you've done marathons in Antarctica, like all over the world. Antarctica, Rome three times. Antarctica, uh, Alaska. Paris, the worst. Never go to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> too many people. What, where where do you run in Antarctica? It's got to be cold to run Antarctica, right? We did it on uh, Georgia Island. We went back and forth three or four times because it was actually it was not cold enough. They said because we we ran on slush. Oh my! Gosh. It wasn't cold. If it had been ice, it would have been easier. You know. I got to tell my brother. He's a, he does marathons and super marathons, and he hasn't done them in a while. But now, if I tell him there's one in Antarctica, he'll, that'll be his next <laughs> his next bucket list. And you won for your age category in Antarctica, am I correct? I did. Yeah. Well, Louis was just five minutes behind me. <laughs> five minutes a long time in a in a marathon, though. That's like wow. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I did okay. No yeah, wonder you so. look like you're in such good shape. Holy cow! I feel embarrassed because I I get out of bed sore, and I'm forty. So uh, I don't know. I always ran because uh, for my mind, ran away away from uh, I don't know, trouble. But I like to. I like to, my mind is my best friend, you know, I like to think. Wow. And, uh, and when I'm running, I just can go there by myself. I also love hiking in the mountains. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 you disappear for weeks at a time. Yes. <laughs> You're incommunicado. Well, no, he does. Uh, he's, like yeah. on, he's, like, he's like, okay, he's there in the There is a trail again. in California called the Jamur Trail. It goes from the top of Whitney, that I've been up there about 15 times, by the way, to the bottom of Yosemite Valley. And uh, it's about, well, the whole thing, it's about 230 miles. And, but you have to add the, the segment from the top of Whitney to the, to the entrance, by the way. So that's why it's 230 miles. I've done that 14 times. Oh, my in, gosh. In its entirety. He just keeps putting layers on the cake. Yeah. God bless you. <laughs> well, it's, it just love it. You know, it's just that with nature. You can get away from the problems of the world. Yeah. You don't have, you don't have any emails up there. No phone reception. Ah, you know, it's true. just great. I, so. I, I can see that with nature. I love a nature hike. I love going to my father-in-law's town in the mountains in Abruzzo, just disappearing for a day. Mm-hmm. But now, all my life, people have I talked about their joy in running, and I've always said how much I hated it. Never been very athletic. But you may have inspired me to give it a shot because the idea that you can kind of just be alone with your mind is a, a powerful incentive, really. Yeah, it's it's a, it's it's for the mind, not so much for the body. Now, Severino, yeah. let me ask you this. And this is my summation question, right? Yeah. So you leave a medieval Italy. Yes. You come to an Italian American Jersey City. You follow the American dream. Like, what's more emblematic of the American dream than California, right? I've been to your house, a beautiful house on the ocean. God bless you. Looking over. The Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, rather, the perfect California lifestyle, the perfect American dream. Yet, as you were approaching 50, 
you get inspired to form Sonia, which was a an organ. Okay. And my question is, what brought you back at that stage in your life to form an organization that was about that chapter, your childhood in Italy? You remember what we said before? In Italy, you live in a little town, you know, you know everybody. And they're all friends. Suddenly you are here in the United States, everybody lives in their own house. You only see each other if you're lucky on weddings and funerals. Yeah. So I lucky. said, why don't we just for, for start an organization we can get together periodically and uh, voila. That's, that's what's Because of idea. all the gifts that America gave you, your heart is still in joy. There's part of you that's still there. Uh, I'm still a proud Italian, no question about it. I mean, I've uh, lived three-quarters of my life uh, in the U- U.S., but uh, no question about I'm a proud Italian. But my heart being in joy, uh, I mean, I can live anywhere. I've been moving around so much. I've traveled all over the world. And, uh, and uh, to me, I don't have roots anymore. You yeah. Know? yeah. So, but you know, it's like... The four-part PBS documentary that John Maggio made, The Italian Americans, I remember being involved with it before it came out and really close to the project. And when I was allowed to watch it before it came out, I watched my wife and I watched the whole – they said, watch 15 minutes. My wife and I watched the whole thing four hours through one morning. And the end of it, the last segment, is about a guy whose family has been gone from Italy for a long time, doesn't really know his roots, and he goes back and he finds them. And I think the conclusion that they came to, that they – presented in that final part without saying it is America. We've done really well in America and we've done really well for America in our contributions. And we've gained so much that merit, the, uh, the economic opportunity, the chance for education. We've, we've been given so much here, but if we ask ourselves what we gave up, we probably gave up that sense of tribe and you know, everybody and that, and then there's that safety to it, right? It's the Rosetto effect because they open with Rosetto. And the Rosetto effect of this little town that even though the economics have died out, people lived longer and had less heart attacks because they were safe and right, they had this whole theory about it. And so maybe that is the – it's not so much that you long for living in that town or it's, it's people or place, but that idea that if you belong to something greater than yourself, which America has that sense of like go forth, young man, and do your own thing. And we in Italy have that sense of you, you you can't set a toe out of line because you represent everybody. If you could find that middle ground and still belong to something greater than yourself based on your heritage, but have the courage and the capacity to go out and do your own thing, but come back to it in some form, even if it's meetings, maybe that's the perfect hybrid of what Italian America represents. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, this has been one of my all-time favorite episodes. I am very hesitant to go to the editing room and try to cut any of this. There's so much of this story, a, a paisan of interest and passion and somebody I am proud to know better now and uh, really glad that Pat brought us together today. If anybody wants to reach me, you can go ahead and tell them how to find me. All right, we can link you. We can link you through. Uh, are you on any social media? Not very good at it. <laughs> Not very good. All right, well, we have the, we'll make sure that it becomes available through us. If you want to reach Severino Donjo do what we always do. Reach out to Pat. He's, yeah, I knew this was coming. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. You love I, hearing I, I from people. Yeah, no, sure. you love it. Pat and I'm going to send to your sister Marie. And she's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, by, the way, the, by the way, I want to thank you both for saying D'Angelo and not D'Angelo. Oh, see, my mother's family goes by D'Angelo. That's her maiden name. So <laughs> I've, I've always balanced between being John Viola or John Viola and my mom's family being D'Angelo or D'Angelo. So it's, yeah, well, yeah. we do it the is, best we can. It is it's a D'Angelo, D apostrophe. Angelo. That's yes. my grandfather. No. That's funny. I didn't even, I never made that connection. So about you and my grandfather, same same surname. No, I, you know somebody mentioned that to me. I'd forgotten. Yeah, something to explore. Yeah, see, yeah. it's all about the family, all about the tribe here on the. Italian the grandfather you were talking about yeah. is on your mother's side. Yeah, D'Angelo. Uh-huh, but he's Sicilian. 
You know, D'Angelo is a very common name in Sicily. Yes. Not in, uh, not in America. Yeah, not by you. Yeah. yeah, that's right. We got to say, maybe we are 23 in May. Maybe we're connected. But it's, uh, it's everybody is sort of interrelated. And we, we preach the gospel of the tribe and belonging to something greater than yourself. And uh, I'm happy to be in the same tribe as you. So I hope everybody out there has enjoyed this amazing view into a wonderful Italian-American and a great friend. And we hope you can help us to share your stories and send the Paisani of interest that you know in your life. We would love the chance to sit down with them. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See that you're born in Italiano.